Shortly before Christmas last year, I had the opportunity to speak as a part of our Advent series. And these verses are, are really the theme of what I talked about. You know, what did it mean that Jesus came when the time was just right, when the fullness of time had come? But there's more in these verses that I want to talk about quickly today. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So why did, you know, Jesus came in the fullness of time when the time was just right, but what did he come to do? He came to redeem us. And I think the question is then, what does that mean to be redeemed? What does it mean that Jesus came to redeem us? And so that's what we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about. And that comes out of the book of Ruth, one of the shortest books in in the entire Bible, one of the shortest books in the Old Testament, Uh, a story of really two women, their relationship with each other, and their relationship with a man named Boaz. And they, they lived in a very difficult culture, in a very difficult situation, and yet God redeemed them out of this situation. And people redeemed them out of this situation. Super, super interesting. Uh, so four weeks, we're going to spend some time talking about this topic. What does it mean to be redeemed? You know, the only time redeemed, that word comes up in our house, is when you're redeeming Cole's cash. I don't think that's what <laughs> Galatians 4 uh, means when we talk about redeeming. So what does it mean? We're going to find that out. I don't expect you to read this. So what you have, what the ushers gave you today, was the text of the book of Ruth, the entire text. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand. The ushers are there. They can, uh, they can get you one. But what I wanted to do was, was to try something different here, give you the text of the book that we're talking about, the whole book, strip out all the verses, uh, strip out all the chapter headings, all, all the notes and the footnotes and things like that, just to have the text. And let's look at the text, and what I'm going to put on the screen is exactly what you've got in your hand, and we're going to underline things, and we're going to look at things, and we're going to look for specific things in the text that maybe will help us understand what is it I'm supposed to get out of this story. It's very true that when, when you read a book of the Bible, you know, the, these are not, they're stories, yes, we would use the term story or narrative of these in the Old Testament, but... It's not there just to tell us a story. It's not there to record a history. It's there to teach us something about God. In every story that's recorded in the Bible, there's a point. And it's our job then to dig into it and figure out what's the point. Why did God want this thing written in his book? What did he want us to understand about himself? And so that's what we're going to spend some time doing. Let's talk about a little bit of the method that you use to do this. And then that's what we're going to step through the next four weeks. So when, when I approach a new book like this, like the book of Ruth, the first thing I always want to do is read the entirety of, of what we're going to be talking about so that you really get the context. You know, if you're reading Galatians, Galatians is a letter, you read the whole thing. It's just a letter. You know, the verses and chapters were added 1,500 years after this was written, or, or even more than that in the case of the Old Testament. So... Um, Read it in the message. Read it in some kind of a paraphrase, something that's in modern English. Really get the idea of what's this whole story about. Then what I want to do is use New American Standard, which is a very accurate word-for-word translation, 
And what you have in your hand then is the New American Standard Version of the book of Ruth with all the extraneous stuff stripped out, just the text. So the next thing that I want to do is as I'm reading through that, where does this naturally break? Now it so happens that in the book of Ruth, the natural breaks generally happen at chapter breaks. So where the chapters were inserted really works well with the story, works well with the text. But that's not always the case as you read the Bible. So I think it's useful to strip all that stuff out, you know, paste it into Word, make a PDF of it or something, print it out, look at it, try to figure out where does this text actually break, where does each individual thought begin and end. And the way Ruth is, is structured, there are four chapters and there are four or three, I guess, really good textual breaks in the story. So it's kind of like a four-act play. And for the next four weeks, we're going to look at Act 1, 2, 3, 4 and just think about what are we learning from each of these and then what's the whole message of the book. When you read a Hebrew narrative, when you read these Old Testament stories, there are certain things that you look for, things that were important in the Hebrew culture, things that when they put stories, when they wrote these stories down, they, they felt were important. Number one is dialogue. Uh, it, it's most often true that when you read a Hebrew narrative, if you pull the dialogue out, you can figure out what this means. The, a lot of the power of these passages is held in the dialogue and how people react to each other and react to God. And then sometimes when God actually speaks in these narratives, you get to find out what God is really thinking. Uh, also look for repetition. You know, this was an oral tradition. Folks did not sit down with their Bible and open it and read in the Old Testament. These folks would have gone to the synagogue and someone would have opened a scroll and they would have read it to them. When something is being read to you then, how do you put something in bold face? How do you put something in italics and say, hey, this is important, pay attention to this? You know, that's what we would do today. We'd underline something. You couldn't do that when you're reading it out loud. What they would do is repeat it. So anytime you see repetition, and I think in the culture, you know, people read the Bible and they're like, this is just all this meaningless repetition. It's annoying. It's there for a reason. It's there because it was to be read out loud. And so when you see repetition, think, oh, wait a minute. I I see this is repeated. This must be important. This must be something that they really wanted the reader to understand. That must be a key then to unlocking what this passage is about. And then looking for editorial comments. These can be a little bit harder to find, but anytime you read something in these stories where it feels like something that was inserted and it's like it's in parentheses, it's like just an aside, you know, that's something that the writer felt like if if you don't understand this little snippet of something, you're not going to understand what this story is about. And so we look for those kind of things. So as we go through this text, those are the type of things that we'll be looking for. Just to to start off here, this is the dialogue in Ruth. Just so you'll see the the prevalence of dialogue in this story. Dialogue is very important. This story is mostly dialogue, you know, strung together with a few other comments in between. So, and the first textual break, for those who are taking notes, is right here. So at the bottom of the first column, obviously I've got this shown with both pages, but you've got it on both sides of the page. So let's just start here, and, and we'll see what we come up with. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. A certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, 
and the name of the wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons, Malon and Chilon. Epaphrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilon also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. So, opening part of the story, that's quite the opening of a story, isn't it? Half of the characters died right off the bat. Kind of a strange opening, but let's think about, okay, what, what have we got here? What do we, what do we learn? It came about in the days the judges governed. This is really important to understand where historically this story takes place and what's going on culturally and, you know, who Israel's enemies were at the time, things like that. So let's take a look at this timeline. Uh, it's about 1350 that the Exodus happened, and you're kind of going left to right. So, or sorry, 1450 was the Exodus, and by about 1350, the Israelites had gone in, they had left Egypt, it was about a hundred year period where they, they wandered for 40 years and then years of conquest where they were taking the land that God had promised to them and then they were in the land that we would now call Israel, right? So they had taken over that Palestinian strip of land by the Mediterranean Sea and then began a period that is one of the darkest periods in Jewish history, the period of the Judges where because they had gone into this land, but they had left pockets of other people in this land that they were supposed to have driven out, that God had told them, drive these people out of this land so that you can have this land to yourself, so that you can be this city on a hill, so that you can be uh, this, this pristine nation that will point people to God. God was not interested. God was not saying I don't like these other people. God was saying, I want Israel to be unique and I want you to be the light at the end of the tunnel for folks so that they see that God is real and so that they, all these other nations, will also accept him. That's what he wanted and Israel needed to be pure because of that. So they did not drive those nations out and as a result, they just constantly were at war. They were constantly in these cycles so this, this was the cycle, and I think this is, this is kind of a picture of, of the Christian life today, these cycles that we go through. You know, you sin, as a result of sin, you fall into slavery. This is what would happen in the book of Judges over and over and over again. And you reach this desperate point where you cry out to God. And in the book of Judges, the, this would happen over 50, 60 years. The people would sin, they would fall into sin, they would worship idols, they would worship foreign gods that, were, that these other countries were bringing to them. They would reach this desperate point where they were really oppressed, usually by the Philistines or by, by other nearby nations. And they would cry out to God and God would send a judge, God would send this ruler God would send what was kind of like a warrior almost, that he would raise them up and fill them with the Spirit, and they would go out and they would defeat the Philistines and drive them back into their land. And then during the life of that judge, there would be a relative peace. So after this victory, then came complacency, right? Which is what often happens even in our lives today. There's this complacency after the victory is won, and you fall back into sin, and the cycle repeats. So this is what was going on uh, in, in the time that the book of Ruth is set. 
a couple other things to note when you get to the end of the book of Judges. So the book of Judges, when you, when you go through the first 17 chapters, it's talking about, you know, Ehud and Gideon and Samson and all these judges that God raised up. And then the last four chapters are really interesting. And there's a reason that they didn't teach you these in Sunday school when you were growing up. It's violent and it's ugly and it's, I'm not even going to talk about it because there are children in the room. It's, go and read the last four chapters of Judges and what you will see repeated multiple times is this statement, in those days there was no king of Israel. And it wasn't saying that they didn't have a physical king. After this period came King Saul and King David and King Solomon. The people wanted a physical king on the ground that they could look at. The thing is, that wasn't God wanted. God was their king. Israel was unique in that they didn't have a king during this time. God would raise up leaders, but God was supposed to be their king. And so what these passages at the end of Judges talk about is, what is it like when God is not king? And how depraved and how horrible can things get? when God is not king, when God is not on the throne of your life, and when God, in this case, was not on the throne in Israel, things got pretty bad. So what you have then is this story of Ruth set during the time, and generally people think it's during the time of Gideon because of what we'll see here in the text, but you've got uh, all these horrible things happening around But then what you have is this little story, this little four-chapter story that you can fit on an eight-and-a-half by 11 page that's kind of like this beautiful love story, this romance story, and and people that are acting with integrity. You know, there are prayers of blessing in Ruth, and every prayer gets answered in Ruth. Um, There were good things happening, and there were people that were following God, even as everything around them in the book of Judges was really going to hell, frankly. It was a bad, a bad time with Israel. So let's go back and take a look at this text again. A certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab. So they entered the land of Moab and remained there. So you're going to see this repeated over and over and over again in this text, that they went to Moab, they lived in Moab. So what, what is it about Moab that we need to know? I think it's also important to understand the history of Israel with Moab. So this is, uh, I found this map, traditional route of the Exodus. I don't completely agree with this map, but I thought it was good to illustrate the point that towards the end of their trip, after they left Egypt, they go to Mount Sinai, they get the law, and then at the end, they were traveling up on the east side of the Dead Sea, and they entered the land of Moab. And the Moabites did not exactly invite them in with open arms. You know, these people were wandering. They were getting ready to go in and take the city of Jericho. And the Moabites hired uh, a priest of God and said, hey, we'll pay you a bunch of money if you'll go out and curse the Israelites for us. And the plan didn't work because every time this guy opened his mouth, he ended up blessing the Israelites because God wouldn't let him curse them. It's a super interesting story, but uh, the Moabites lived off to the east of Israel, were just a constant thorn in the side of the people of Israel. Uh, Moab, the, the original Moab, who was the father of the Moabites, was the son of Abraham's nephew Lot. He was the son of Abraham's nephew Lot and Lot's own daughter. So a very weird, weird situation there. 
And that, that kind of inauspicious start really resulted in a country that, that was very opposed to God and then opposed to the people of God. So the idea then that an Israelite would leave this promised land, would leave the place that God put them, the land of milk and honey, and they would go and live for 10 years in this nation that was pagan, that was opposed to God, that was opposed to Israel, that really wasn't a good thing. That was not what God had intended them to do. And so uh, as a result, you'll see what happens here in the story. I also think it's interesting when you start reading something I've got a a Bible tree app on my phone, and I will go in and I will look at the meanings of all the names in the stories. And sometimes these really mean something. Other times they don't mean as much. Elimelech, so this guy and his family leave the country. His name means God is king. Naomi means pleasant or lovely, and that's really going to come up in our story. That's going to matter what her name means. Um, Ruth means friendship, Orpah means stubborn, uh, actually stiff-necked is, is what her name means in the Hebrew. And then Melon Shalom, we don't know what their names mean. They don't, they don't translate from any particular word. I also thought it was interesting, there's a famine in the land, and Bethlehem means place of bread, So Bethlehem is the place where bread is, and they leave the place of bread because there is no bread, apparently, and they go to sojourn, they go to take a trip to a foreign land. Uh, It's most likely, given the fact that this is happening during Judges, that it, it was a famine more because somebody was coming in and raiding the land. You know, the Philistines would come in, they would raid the land, they would steal the crops, they would burn things. And so it wasn't really that the land wasn't producing. It was that somebody was coming in and stealing all their food. In fact, when you look at the story of Gideon in Judges, Gideon, when, when he is first on the scene, he's threshing wheat inside a wine press. So he's down in this basement underground trying to thresh wheat in this cloud of wheat dust because he knows that if he's above ground, somebody's going to see him and come steal all his food. So this is a a time when famine was probably a fairly common thing in the land of Israel. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab, 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 that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food, probably because someone raised up a judge, and maybe that judge was Gideon, who drove the Philistines out so that they could, again, have their food. i got to get back to my spot here. Okay, so she departed from the place where she was and her two daughter-in-laws with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So this then is the first dialogue that we see in this book. And this really sets up the story. This sets up the tension in the story. You know, you're thinking, okay, things are bad. You know, this was a culture you have to understand, not, not a whole lot like our culture. Uh, if you were a woman in this culture, you were not allowed to go out and work outside the home. You were not allowed to bring in an income. 
So a woman with two daughters-in-law where the husbands of everybody have died, they're in a really desperate circumstance. Not only that, but they're living in a foreign land where they don't even have the community around them to support them. They don't have their extended family to support them. So you can't underestimate how desperate of a circumstance these ladies are in. And what Naomi says makes very good sense, honestly. She's saying, uh, Ruth, Orpah, just go back to your people, go back to your gods. You know, maybe you will get married, maybe you will be able to have a life. Because frankly, I'm going to go back, and if you go with me, we're going to be just scraping by for the rest of our lives, and it's going to be really hard. So it's reasonable then to think that both of these girls would say, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll just go back to where we were. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So you've got this dichotomy then. You've got this what, how Orpah responds, how Ruth responds. Also worth saying, you know, have I yet sons in my womb that you may have husbands? Something else that seems very odd to us in our culture is the way they handled these situations where someone's husband died. It was the responsibility then if, if, a, if a husband died and had a wife, that husband's brother, it was his responsibility then to marry the, the widow and to bear children with the widow, and then to name those children after the dead husband so that the name of that dead husband's family would be able to continue on. That was something that the law had spelled out. So that's, that's what's going on here when she's saying, you know, I, I, I'm not going to have any more children, and we can't fulfill this law. So really, there isn't a lot of hope here. I don't know what we're going to do. You, you all just need to go back home. For it is harder for me than for you, for the, land of the, of, of, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So was God really opposing Naomi? Was God opposing this or not? From the story, we really don't know. You know, was it, was it right that they left the land because there was a famine and they went to live in the land of Moab? Probably not. You know, was it the judgment of God then that all these people died? We don't really know, and the text doesn't really tell us. I don't necessarily think so. But I think what you're seeing here in this dialogue is Naomi's thinking process, thinking what's going on here. You know, did Naomi and her family make a mistake in going, and and what they're experiencing is the judgment of God? Or is it not so much that? But at this point, she seems to be thinking God is against me. You know, we made a mistake. God is against me. I'm going to go back home. My life is over. I'm going to be scraping by for the rest of my life. So that's what she's thinking. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So 
Ruth is sticking around, but she's saying, don't. You need to go. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So clearly, this is the big statement early in this book. You know, Orpah takes the common sense approach here, right? And she goes back to her people. And Naomi's even saying, go back to your gods. You know, they had lived together for 10 years. So it's reasonable to think that in their home, they had talked about this God in Israel and the blessings that God had poured out on Israel. So Orpah somehow had not absorbed that and had not taken that to heart and was willing just to go back to her people and her gods because that was the safe bet. Ruth was not. You know, something had had stuck with Ruth from what she had heard from Naomi and the family for this 10-year period. And she makes this great statement of faith. And one thing that I want to focus on here with this statement You know, we have this idea, I think, in Christian circles, especially in the the United States, I mean, Christian circles, evangelical circles, that there are these things that you have to say to make a statement of faith. You know, I admit that I sinned, and and there's this, you know, there's this formula that you have to say. I've talked to people over the years that, you know, maybe I didn't say the right thing. You know, when I accepted Jesus, maybe I didn't say the right thing. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I need to do it again. And there's just this constant crisis of faith. Like maybe, maybe I, I missed the formula here. I don't, I don't see any of those things that in Western Christianity we think of as a statement of faith here necessarily. What I see is, is what Ruth, what was in Ruth's heart, what she thought was important to say, Uh, doubling down on this idea, let's go back to Genesis 15. You know, this is Abram. So this is the guy that started it all. Abram, who becomes Abraham, who's the father of the nation of Israel. God is making a promise in this chapter to Abraham. And it says, he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So God is saying your offspring will be like the stars in the sky, uncountable. And then it says, a very interesting thing, Abraham, or Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him his righteousness. I think in all the Bible, that is the simplest statement of what it means to have a conversion experience, to, to accept who God is. Super simple. In fact, it doesn't even say, does it, that Abram said anything. It says he believed. God said something, and Abram just believed that God is who he says he is. And God credited it into his bank account, basically. It's an accounting term. He credited it to him as righteousness. It's, it really is no more complicated than that. You know, do you believe or do you not believe? So let's wrap up with chapter 1 here. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. When they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, 
but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord is witness against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So the first thing to talk about here is this. Talk about repetition. Are, are we not clear at this point that Ruth is from Moab, that they were living in the land of Moab, that she is a daughter of Moab? Uh, it is repeated over and over again because it's super important, and this, this will go on, sorry, the next three weeks. Every time you hear about it, there's just this constant Ruth the foreigner, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the daughter-in-law, Naomi the mother-in-law. It's over and over and over again because that is a key to understanding where this story is going and what we need to learn about God. Ruth was from a foreign land. Ruth is the daughter-in-law Naomi should not have had. Naomi should not have gone to Moab. Now they're coming back and she has this daughter-in-law with her who is a foreigner, who is excluded from things in Israel. They don't really have a lot of hope at this point. And I think if we go back up here, we can look at what, what's in Naomi's head. You know, when, when they show back up, you know, they're like, is, is that Naomi? You know, she's, she's not looking so good. You know, that, that's the vibe. And, and you have this, you know, you have this comment from it says, the women of... of the city, I guess, is what it's getting at. And you'll see several times in this story that the, the women of the city or the people of the city are almost like a character in this play, you know, like the chorus in an old Greek play where the, the people say something. So when she comes back, you know, maybe they've not done so well on the trip. You know, maybe it's been a very difficult trip. They're certainly just scraping by and when she comes back, they're like, wow, is, is this really Naomi? And what's her response? Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. I'm bitter. You know, Naomi is mad. And we went and we went and did this thing and we thought we were going to get out of this situation. And now I'm coming back and we've got nothing. There's nothing left. And that's kind of where Act 1 of this play closes. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. um, And we're going to celebrate communion today. One thing to note, I guess, I I was told to make sure to say, the bread that we're serving today is gluten-free, just so everybody understands that. Um, Communion is a, a meal that we share as believers in Jesus. Uh, after you put your faith in God, something that, that Jesus instituted for us. Before we, before we take of the elements together, I want you to think about a couple things. The band's going to play some music for us, and we're just going to spend a couple minutes thinking and praying. It could be that today you're out of the story. You identify more with Ruth. You know, it's time to jump in with both feet. It's time to put your faith in this God that we've been talking about. And I would urge you to take this time to talk to God about that. And I would say, don't, don't worry about the words. You know, I think from what we've seen today, God knows what's in your heart. You know, I don't think the words matter a whole lot. You know, talk to God. You know, accept that he is who he says he is. 
It's also possible today that you identify more with Naomi. And that's some pretty heavy stuff. You know, she came back and she's angry and she feels like, you know, God has abandoned me. God is crushing me. And she's mad, very clearly in this passage, she's mad at God. You know, life has not turned out the way she wanted it to turn out, and she's angry about it. And one thing I would tell you, if you identify more with that, Naomi's story isn't over, and neither is yours, but I get it if you're angry at this point right now. And I will tell you that, like Naomi, just saying it like it is in the passage Just tell God how you feel. You know, he can take it. He already knows. I remember that being kind of a revolutionary thing to me to think, God already knows how I feel. Why would I not just talk to him about it? Why would I not just admit how I feel? So those are the two things to think about this morning. And then I'll come back up uh, and we'll take communion together.